0: This is Gary Newborn, and welcome to this British football podcast on the EFL Special. My guests are Danny Higginbottom, who had a great career in the EFL. He played for 12 clubs overall, starting at Manchester United, and others included two spells at Stoke. Then we're delighted to welcome Joe Thompson, who had three spells with Rochdale. Uh, We're full of admiration for the way that he twice overcame cancer, and uh, delighted to see him looking really well. He, by the way, also started at Manchester United. And then there's Jen Maidman, a former football writer, who is a lifetime Arsenal supporter. Welcome, everybody.
1: First of all, let me ask you, Joe, how is your health these days? Really, really well. You know, first and foremost, thank you for having us on, Gary. Um, But yeah, um, three years now into remission for the second time, so... You know, with everything that's going on, it's been uh, quite a hectic time. But I think it's really brought forward that health is wealth and that, you know, with everything that I've been through and overcome, I truly, truly understand that. We'll talk about
0: that a little later, but we're full of admiration for that, Joe. and delighted to see you, but I would like to know what you're doing these
1: days. So a lot of motivational talks. Um, I do quite a bit of media work as well, but a lot of my work, up until, well, March entailed within football, working with the League Football Education, and also within corporate and schools. So a lot of it's come to a halt for the meantime, but Zoom has been a wonderful platform to, for me to be able to continue my work. Great news.
0: Right, let's go to Danny now. Um, Danny, you're a pundit for newspapers. I heard you on the Sky commentary the other night with the Brentford Uh, match Um, really doing well Um, was it difficult because you well you we'll talk about Gibraltar later on Hmm. you're a Gibraltar international which (laughs) doesn't always qualify you for the top jobs in in British television was it difficult to break through
2: as a pundit um I think first and foremost I just want to say Joe you've been an absolute inspiration mate um following you on social media and, and what have you. I think you've been absolutely fantastic. And, you know, to, to watch from a distance, it's been, it's been unbelievable. And fair play no, to I everything that you're doing that. as well now. No, Different and class.
1: And I see that as well. Don't worry about it. Yeah. Um, no, it, it was something
2: that I, I sort of fell upon it because when I was at Stoke, I think 2011, we got to the FA Cup final. And I missed the semi-final and the final because I did my cruise ship, I think, two games before the semi-final. And... I then started to do a few things because obviously Stoke were in the spotlight getting into, into the FA Cup final. And it was something that I enjoyed, but then I was working on my rehab and then I just really put it to one side. And then it wasn't really probably until towards the end of my career where I just started to get a buzz from doing media more so than I was playing football. So I knew that you know I found something that I wanted to do. And then all all it is about really is people giving you an, giving you an opportunity, and that's all you can ask. If someone gives you the opportunity, it's up to you then. So, yes, I understand the fact of you know a lot of the the, the top pundits have you know been associated with top clubs, win won all the competitions, had all the success. But I still think there is opportunities for players that haven't because they can give the other side of the stories in terms of you know what what goes what goes on in the the middle of the Premier League towards the bottom or relegation fights in any leagues. And um, you had a lot. Just one before we move on. You had a lot
0: of injuries, didn't you? Looking through your your record in your career, you had quite a few injuries, really.
2: I was I was fortunate, really. I it wasn't so much um, that I had a lot of injuries. It was it was a significant injuries that I had when I was seventeen. I broke my femur, which you know Dave Fever, was one of the best physios that I've ever had. He was he yeah. was the head physio at Manchester United at the time. And he'd come from rugby, and he'd never seen a, an injury like it before. You know, to, to break your femur playing football. And then I had a situation with my back, which I kept playing with, and had to have an operation um, over that. My actual one of my discs in my in my back popped during a game, which was very very uncomfortable. And then I did my cruciate. So it wasn't it wasn't the amount of injuries that I had. It was more so you know the the length the length that I was out with injuries. But if I look back throughout my career, I think I was. I believe that I was quite fortunate in terms of the injuries, obviously, until towards the latter stages of my career.
0: Okay. um, Moving on to Jim Maidment now. Um, Jim, first of all, I'm sure you'd like to echo your admiration for Joe and his recovery and the model he's set. And secondly... um, Two two spells at Stoke for Danny. They didn't really like your team very much, did they, Arsenal?
3: <laughs> no, I don't know why that is actually. But listen, first of all, Joe, Danny, great to great to have you both on. And yeah, and I just want to echo. I mean, I think Joe, you've you know what, what you've done and what you've achieved since uh, obviously your cancer diagnosis and beating it has been nothing short of extraordinary. So hats off, mate, big mm-hmm. time. Um, and I know you probably don't you don't want what's happened to you to define you, but there's big positives to come out of it about how you've come out the other side and what you're doing now, isn't
1: there? No, 100%. And that's, you know, the message I kind of carry. I do feel like I've got, I would suppose, say, a sense of responsibility to share my story, to help others. But like you say, it's, it's a big part of my life, but I wouldn't say it defines my life.
0: Yeah. yeah I absolutely. do want to come back to that, but, Gem, um, what about Stoken? And-
3: that, that, Danny talk to me, mate, because um I, I don't have a problem with Stoke personally, however, there is a I know we've talked about Aaron Ramsey and all that kind of stuff you know in the past, but I've never quite understood it myself, mate, but I know my understanding was this goes back 40, 50 years, but i've
2: yeah i I'm, I'm not too too aware obviously of, of previous to when Stoke came into the Premier League. I think one one of the things that that frustrated a lot of Stoke City supporters, especially the first year or so, I think the first game we played at at what was the Britannia at the time, we beat Arsenal. And everybody was saying, you know, about how we were a rugby team. You know, Arsene Wenger was, was playing off that. And it was Arsenal that had, I think, one or two plays sent off in the game. You know, we didn't have any plays sent off. And it just sort of went from then. And I think the big thing was, was that with Arsene Wenger, like I say, one of the best managers the Premier League's ever seen. But... He had, a, he had an issue with Stoke at the time. You know, he, he said that we were physical and said that you know, we didn't play football the right way. But the one thing that Stoke supporters remember from that time was that Sir Alex Ferguson came to the Brit, never complained about the style of football. Chelsea, I can't remember who the manager was at the time, did exactly the same thing. Liverpool, Manchester City, and there was no real complaining. And one of the things I think made Stoke successful, in particular in those, the first couple of years in the Premier League, was that we created a siege mentality. Which was anything like anything that was said about us, especially by someone like Arsene Wenger, it meant that we'd got under his skin a little bit. So we took it as a real compliment and we used that to galvanize us for, for the rest of the season. Um, and then obviously, we know then what what happened with Aaron Ramsey a little bit later on, which was, which was horrific. It was awful to see. But you know, the first play that's over there was Glenn Whelan and he didn't leave his side till he went off the pitch. So there's obviously. You know the the little bit of rivalry, not as in terms of success, but there there seems to be a rivalry between Arsenal supporters and Stoke City supporters. But it's in terms of the players, there was never there was never issue with us on the pitch or anything like that. We just used it to to fuel us to to actually enable us to stay in the Premier League and and, and have good finishes. I was going to say, so
3: did, so did that make you sorry? But did that make you a bit more determined to beat Arsenal? When was there a bit of an edge in that sense when you played them because of what had been said?
2: No, I, I think. The thing that I would always say about Arsenal is that when I look back to the success that they had over the years, they were a team that if you wanted to go toe to toe with them is in terms of physicality, you could do that. They would beat you with that and then they'd go on and beat you. You know, the players they had, the likes of Petit, the likes of Vieira, you know, Campbell at the back, certain players, Ray Parlour. You know, I've been in plenty of battles with those players that I've just mentioned, but then their quality would come through. But what we felt with The latter stages of the Arsenal team, if I want to go probably to 2008-2009, was that they had some outstanding footballers. But the questions were always going to be, could they deal with the physicality? Now, if we came up to the Premier League and decided, right, we're going to go toe-to-toe with Arsenal, Manchester United, Liverpool, Chelsea and play the beautiful game, we'd have been down by October. So what we had to do was do something that worked in our favour. And that's what we did And You know, we didn't, obviously, we know, like I say, going back with Aaron Ramsey it was a horrific injury. But if you look throughout the seasons, we never, we never really crossed the line. You know, a lot of people have said to me in the past, oh, you were a dirty player. I never got sent off in my career. I think I had nine bookings in the whole of my career, which, you know, one suspension, which was because of an accumulation of bookings. So sometimes you, get, you just get tarnished with this brush. And it doesn't ring true. So, like I say, it it was what it was. It was a rivalry. It was a rival rivalry that we that we really enjoyed as well. Yeah, we love um, you, really. Yeah. <laughs> actually, to be honest, <laughs> I don't love you, <laughs> <But> Arsenal.
0: <laughs> to be honest, uh, to be honest, Stoke Arsenal's pussycats compared with uh, Arsenal Spurs. But let's move into the EFL and talk about. First of all, we must talk about Wickham. You know, the one thing that's not been said about Wickham is that it's almost parallel to Burton Albion, who went up from non-league in the 90s to, nobody said this, to the championship. They have come down to League One. But if you look at Wickham Wanderers, everybody, in they were formed in 1887. In 1992, Martin O'Neill won the playoff in the conference to take them for the first time into the... Football League, which is now known as the EFL. And here they are, relatively short time later, with the longest serving manager, Gareth Ainsworth, in the championship. I mean, let's start with you, Joe.
1: What an achievement that is! Incredible. You know, I was uh, only listening to Gareth on the podcast a couple of weeks ago and He spoke with such honesty, which was really, really refreshing for a manager. You know, he's gone in there and he's been a big part of that club through the highs and the lows. So to see them get promoted um, in the fashion that they did as well against kind of all the odds, the underdog, he he spoke about it. He was quite happy with going into the playoffs and into the final with that, you know, being branded about but. Unbelievable, unbelievable. And you can see the unity and the togetherness that he's created. You know, big characters like Akin Fenway and Bloomfield, And I would say I've been fortunate enough to play against these players. Um, so I understand the impact that some of these players can have in the game, even like Joe Jacobson. Wonderful left foot. Left foot. I've come against him many, many times, many a duel. And Wickham's always been a tough place to play. Um, so credit to him. Yes, and Gem,
0: um, do you think they'll stay in the championship? I think they will, but uh, the attitude is everything. What do you think?
3: Well, let's start at the beginning. What did, what did Gareth say last week that they only had nine players at pre-season training for the first? I mean, let's just so favourites to
0: be relegated. They, they to be relegated.
3: Yeah, I think what Rochdale, maybe Morecambe have got, you know, smaller budgets. Maybe I don't know, but there can't be many more. Um, will they stay up? Who knows? It's going to be a huge summer for Gaff to, to you know, he's, he's got a lot of players to buy in. I mean, I, I just have to say though, you know, for me, this for me is the moment of the season. I know Liverpool. There's two ex-Man United players on this. There's not going to be much love lost for for Liverpool, but you know, Liverpool's a great achievement. Thirty-year waiting, all the rest of it. But this, I think, the Wickham thing is the story of the season for me because it's amazing. It's just such a shame to see it in an empty Wembley. Um, you know real a real gutter for them um, and you know and obviously I think the moment of the season was Bayo's interview at the end which I must have watched 10 times since then will they stay up it's going to be tough for them but you know they've got a chance they've got an absolute chance and the one thing that Joe just said there is that unity they've got it's it just it's tangible you know you can feel it you can taste it and um, you know I'm sure that have them in good stead anyway
0: Dan, Danny um, when I look at Sheffield United who were favourites to go down this season when I look at Wickham who were favourites to go down from their division this season I think it's about time we accepted that if you've got good managers who you stick by you've got a chance of surprising people in football I I think one of the biggest crimes in British football English football is the way that these chairmen just lose patience so Mm. quickly I mean, Sheffield United, I think, I think, if memory's not playing trick, because it's been such a long season, This, I think they didn't start great, did they? Am I right, Sheffield yeah,
2: United? They, they, their, away form, their away form was absolutely brilliant. It was the home form that they, that they couldn't yeah. get going. But I think when you're talking about time, I think the prime example is probably one of the, one of the best performing teams at the moment in the Premier League, which is Southampton. You look at Hasenhutl, yeah. you know, 9-0 by, by Leicester at home everybody's thinking oh well that's going to be the end of him no it was it was the turning point it was the reset button and that's exactly what they did but as in terms of Sheffield United when you look at you know you talk about Sheffield United I was asked the question when they got promoted would they stay up and and I I said straight away that there wouldn't be an issue and they did stay up because of the togetherness but not just that the style the style's incredible I call it organized chaos and the one thing that I love about Chris Wilder is that you know, I was fortunate enough to cover a few of a few of their games in League One, and then covered a lot of them in the Championship. He's not changed anything. You know, okay, in, the, in League One in the Championship, he played like a three-four-one-two, and now it's more of a three-five-two because they're not dominating possession as much. But they haven't changed. And if you look at the players, and this is where I think people get people get, get carried away, and they say, "Well, okay, well they haven't got this player, they haven't got that player." Togetherness and the unity of a dressing room. And the collective is so much more important than individuals. Because as an individual, you can, have an, you can have an outstanding individual in the team, but that's not going to make the team good. What's going to make the team good and what's going to make the team tick? Unless, you know, you have these world-class players like a, a Messi or Ronaldo. But, you know, for all intents and purposes, it, it's the togetherness that, that enables teams to, to, to solidify themselves and to, and to surprise teams as well. Because if you go back last season when Fulham got promoted, obviously they're trying to get promoted again now they went out and spent 100 million pound and you could see that the the team spirit and everything was just completely taken away because what they'd achieved together what they'd been through together was then taken away from them and that can usually set you in good stead
0: so what about wickham do you think they'll stay in the championship
2: i think i think they've got a they've got a really good chance to do it because i think what what we're seeing now is the championship is evolving all the time and i think that's been shown by, especially the top seven or eight in the championship, if you put them in, in with the bottom six in the Premier League, I think it's very difficult to, to say you know which teams have come from which league. But I think at the bottom, we're seeing Luton now having a real go for it. Yeah. We've, we're, we're seeing other teams having a go for it. So there's no reason, but you have to go up there with a plan. And I think that's the biggest thing. The one thing I would say, though, is that if I look at all four divisions, I think the biggest jump is from League One to the Championship. I don't think it's from the Championship to the Premier League anymore. I think that jump, whether it be as a manager or as a player, is absolutely huge. And that's where the problems come in.
0: Danny, you say that, but most teams who go up, well, there's a lot of teams, not most teams, a lot of teams that go up come straight down from the Premier
2: League. But but nowhere near as much as they used to. But what I would say on that... Norwich is an example. Norwich is an example, but... When you look at Norwich, and this is where Villa, a lot of people...
0: Sorry, just to butt in yeah. there.
2: Boston-Villa.
0: Those... So if those two go down, that's mm-hmm. two of teams that got promoted last season straight down again. So, you know, the, the managers say the biggest jump is the championship to the, to the Premier League. The lot See, of managers I talk to... I
2: The, the reason I say it, when was the last time a team got relegated from the Premier League and went straight back up? Probably about 2015, 2016, and that was Newcastle. So that's the thing. And then the following year, so you've got to remember as well, if we look at Sheffield United, Wolves, Bournemouth, yes, they may come down now. Burnley, you know, they've gone up and they, they've not looked back. You know, the Premier League and the Championship used to be a little bit of a yo-yo. It'd be the same two or three teams coming down and then the but, same two or three teams going up. But well, that's not but happening and anymore.
0: Car- I don't want to argue with you because I no, want no. your opinions. But Fulham and uh, Cardiff have still got a great chance of bouncing back pretty quickly.
2: They, they have, but the, the chances are few and far between. And what I would say about Fulham is when they got promoted, instead of building on what they had, they ripped the team up. They completely ripped the team up. And that's what, that, that's, what, that's what made it very difficult for them to have a chance now. They would have stood a better chance of staying in the Premier League if they'd have stuck with the same players that got them promoted.
0: Actually, I told a fib there, I do like arguing. Uh, so let me move on. <laughs> <laughs> Debating. Let me move on to Joe. <laughs> Come on, Joe. Leeds, West Brom. West Brom going to blow it. Um, Brentford. I'm going to ask about Brentford to Danny in a moment uh, and to Jem because they have come out of the the lockdown better than any other team in the championship at the moment. They, They are flying. But Leeds look as if they're going to do it. Do you think West Brom will do it, Joe,
1: from what you've seen? I do think from what I've seen, but like you said, Brentford, since, you know, everything's kind of got back to normal, I think it's eight on the spin. Um, and Ollie Watkins, main man, uh, a young player that's played lower down in the league. You can see that hunger. I with mean, the likes of Benrahma around him, but those other two, they're in pole position in a way. Um, so West Brom, I would say the Leeds, 16 years, long overdue, uh, and they'll be a great addition to the Premiership, Um, you know, massive fan base. Um, West Brom, Bilic has gone in and done an unbelievable job. So it's it's all to play for, but free-flowing football. And I would also say, like Danny said there, those two teams jumping up, they'll do quite well if they do get promoted in the Premiership. I don't worry too much if they make the right, you know, additions to the squad with two managers that have implemented their style and done it really well. Uh, The future bodes well for both of them clubs if they do get promoted. And
0: Danny, um, we'll talk uh, soon about who might be in the playoffs, who might win the playoffs. But do you see West Brom, I think we're all agreed that Leeds would have to do something stupid to Mm -hmm. mess it up now. Um, Do you see Danny uh, West Brom hanging on? Because it's it's down to them. They've got two games left this weekend and then they've got QPR on Wednesday what do you think?
2: Yeah I would fully expect them to beat QPR in the last game uh, next Wednesday I think the the biggest obstacle for them is is Huddersfield they go to Huddersfield um, and Huddersfield you know they're they're at the other end of the table trying to get themselves out of the predicament that that they find themselves in you know because they, they have to be careful because they could end up doing what Sunderland did, which is going down, you know, two seasons in a row from the Premier League to League One in no time. Um, but I, I think West Brom, you've got to give, you know, like Joe said, you've got to give Bilic so much credit because what he lost or what the club lost last summer, they lost Rodriguez, they lost Gale, who went back to Newcastle, and obviously um, Harvey Barnes went back earlier in the January window to Leicester. That was a huge amount of goals and the business that they've done. You know, John Shaw sure knows about Ajayi, who was, who was at Rotherham before. Outstanding player, Romain Sawyers. Uh, they got Dean Garner on loan, Pereira. You know, the, he's, he's done some unbelievable amounts of business um, to, to give themselves a, a really good opportunity. And I think when you look at Leeds and West Brom, there's huge pressure on them, but they've dealt with it. You know, they've been at the top of the pack for the majority of the season and probably had the most pressure on them because of the fact of, you know, Leeds, I know they've not been in the Premier League recently, but they've, they've always been so close. In my opinion, the biggest club in the Championship yeah. and West Brom, not so long ago, they were in the Premier League, so they've dealt with that pressure and you've got to give great credit to, to both sets of players and the managers. I think the one thing
0: also that people have got to remember, and we'll talk about Brentford in a few minutes, but... Um, Brentford have got a better goal difference than West Brom. And West Brom have stopped scoring goals. They've got a big squad, really Mm. big squad, West Brom. And they've got some strikers, but they don't seem to be scoring.
2: Yeah, when I look at West Brom, they've got a far better away record than they have at home. And they like it when teams come onto them. And I think that's why you look at the Huddersfield game and you think to yourselves, you know what, Huddersfield do need the points. Could that go in West Brom's favour? Because they might actually come out at them. And that could be the case. But the problem that they've had in this way, Pereira, you know, he's, he's, my, he's my player of the year in the championship. He's been the player that's been, that, that's been able to unlock defences. Um, but at some t- at times they can be frustrated and they actually can get frustrated by teams that are in the lower echelons of the championship. When teams want to go toe-to-toe with West Brom, that works perfectly for them. They showed that against Derby in recent times when they can play on the counter-attack. But it's when they have to do all the running and obviously being the possession-based team, that's when it can be a little bit more difficult for them.
0: Okay, we're going to pause there. When we come back, I'm going to ask Jem Maidman, a former football writer, what he thinks of Brentford and whether Brentford can do it. And we'll look at the playoffs and we'll look at the relegation in the Championship. But right now, just to remind you that this is Gary Newborn and my guests are Danny Higginbottom and Joe Thompson. Starting with you, Jem. Brentford, will they do it? And that goal difference is very might be very important. On the other hand, it's still in Leeds and West Brom's hands with two matches to go.
3: Well, you just made the point there. It's still in Leeds and West Brom's hands. But having said all that, you know, the momentum, there is huge momentum with Brentford at the moment. Is it eight eight wins on the trot now? Um, I think and so. it's, it's very easy to forget as well. They lost Neil Mope at the beginning of the season, which was a big loss for them, or, or perceived to be a big loss for them at the time. Uh, and I think that maybe one or two people thought, OK, they've had, they've had a good run um, and and that's, and that's the end of that. But it's not been... I think a key player from as well at times has been uh, Pontus Janssen this year coming in from Leeds. Again, a, it's an unexpected transfer. I don't know what the, the backstory was behind that, but it seemed a bit of an odd one. But, you know, he could be joining Leeds in the Premier League next year. I think that they, I think that at the moment, the momentum, the swagger they've got, and that's the thing with Brentford, they are very, very easy on the eye and you can see 11 players out there um, who who enjoy themselves as well. I thought the, the the win at Derby in particular was was at times they were toying with Derby and you know Derby still have aspirations of going up themselves. Um, will they go up automatically? Again, as you make the point, it's down to Leeds and West Brom to to make mistakes along the way, which is not inconceivable. Leeds um, have handled the pressure brilliantly this year. Last year, not so much. Uh, I remember seeing them lose to Norwich at home at the back end of last season, which kind of pretty much ended it for them. Um, and you could see the pressure of that Ellen Road crowd. I mean, you know, Danny makes the point. Huge club, 40,000 every week or 35,000. They're a Premier League club in all but name. Um, but I think, I think, you know, I can see Leeds, Leeds definitely uh, going up. West Brom are the ones, I think, that could trip up. Who knows? But even if Brentford make the playoffs at the moment, you've got to back them.
0: Yeah. Um, well, Leeds have lost nine games, drawn nine. West Brom have lost six, but they've drawn 16. And Brentford, who've drawn nine, have lost 11. What is it, though, that uh, Danny, that Thomas Frank, the manager, has done? He looks a cool dude, as they say. Yeah. Uh, What has he done?
2: Well, I think one of the things, everybody, when they talk about Brentford, you talk about the BMW. You know, you talk about the front three, um, Ben Rama, Watkins, and Mbermel. But... If you speak to Thomas Frank, he will tell you that the reason they are where they are is because of the defensive side of the of their team. So I know there's two games left now, but they've conceded 38 less. 38 less than last yeah. season, which is quite incredible. And, you know, as, as quite rightly stated, you know, Pontus Janssen, he's been the key to it. Because the one thing with Brentford, even if you look at them over recent seasons, they've always been pleasing on the eye. They've always been pleasing on the eye, but... They could concede goals. But what they've got in Janssen is a player who's a leader. They've got Pinnock, who was playing non-league football three years ago. He's his centre-back partner. They brought Raya in from Blackburn, who's been absolutely magnificent. Norgard, who's coming as well, who's a defensive midfielder. So what you've got within that unit at the back and the defensive midfield, that means that the front three players and the other two midfielders can go and join in and express themselves. But they're playing with a real freedom. There's, There's no way near as much pressure on them. That's on West Brom and is on Leeds. The only pressure that's on them is a the pressure from from within. And when you speak to Thomas Frank, one of the things he says he says whether we make whether we go into the playoffs or whether we go up automatically, it's all about momentum. So we want to win every game. And if they if it is the playoffs for them, in my opinion, they'll go up because they're, they're the best performing team in the league at this moment.
0: Yes, I, I agree with you. We have seen top teams slip up in playoffs, of course, but but on paper, you're absolutely right. Uh, Coming to you, Joe, Um, look, Brentford, if they don't make automatic, will make the playoffs, as will Fulham. So that leaves two other spaces. We've got Nottingham Forest on 70 points, Cardiff on 67. They're in the position at the moment for the playoffs. Then you've got Millwall, who've been a bit flaky lately, with 65 points, Swansea with 64, and Preston, uh, who didn't make it the other night, against Brentford with 62 so you, you're really looking, I suppose you're looking at Forest, Cardiff, Millwall and Swansea maybe. I don't know. Uh, yeah, but I think the others are out of it now. Um, who do you think will get the other two spots go?
1: It's interesting because like you say there, when you read it out and you look at the table, you know, Cardiff had a, um, a very good victory the other night. Um, and Nottingham Forest have been in and around it. So... It looks to me like the, the positions are cemented. But, like Danny just said before, it's about that momentum. You know, anything can happen in the playoffs. I've been on the receiving end twice. I've been beaten in the playoffs. And it, and it literally was because we didn't have the momentum. We didn't have that feel-good factor going into the playoffs. Um, and you've seen with what Wickham have done over the last couple of weeks having that momentum is huge and Brentford seem to have it so I can't look past the fact that Brentford should and on form and on paper go up and the other two I've got a few friends that play for Cardiff so if I'm going to be a bit of a bias and a bit of a soft spot I would also like to see Cardiff get in the final and potentially get promoted
0: I used to cover, Gem for ITV, the playoffs, and it's quite interesting. I don't know whether it's going to be the same with Brentford if they don't make automatic promotion, or West Brom if they lose out. But there seems to be an effect in playoffs of teams who just missed out on automatic promotion. And although I agree with Danny on paper, Brentford stitched on, it never quite works out because it becomes an FA Cup competition. You have... Teams that you expect to win the playoffs struggle to get through to the final. And then, you know, under Steve Bruce, I expected Villa to beat Fulham, but they didn't. And last season, Derby, I thought, would run them a bit closer. Um, But Villa did get through. So how do you, I mean, do you think Brentford are automatic winners if they dip out? Or do you think the playoffs are a bit of a lottery now?
3: Well, yeah, but to to be honest with you, I think they are. Because I think Danny makes the point. There's no pressure on Brentford. There's, the pressure isn't on them, the pressure's you know Nottingham Forest is a big football club I th- I yeah. suspe- suggest there's a lot more pressure on up, Cardiff to get back up there, you know even even perhaps Fulham you know because they've they've been in the prem relatively recently. There are a couple on the on the, on the edge i mean I, I I still have a feeling that Millwall might just sneak in as well. you know who knows but I, I don't think the pressure's on Brentford they've got a brand new stadium to move into. Revenue's going to be going up there anyway. It's a fantastic facility if you haven't seen it, very close to Griffin Park. Um, it's just a shame that fans can't get into Griffin Park for the last uh, last game. Um, but you know, I I don't think the pressure's on Brentford. I think that's going to tell. And if you if if you couple that with the momentum that they currently have at the moment, I, I I wouldn't say they're nailed on. There's no such thing as nailed on. But I would be backing them heavily if I, think, I was a if I was a betting man, which I'm not.
2: I hasten to add. But you know, I think one one of the things that stands out. One of the things that stands out. And we haven't really discussed it is. If you look at certain teams in the championship, especially teams that are, you know, looking to get into the playoffs, fans are going to have a huge effect, a massive effect, because if you look at Millwall, we all know what it's like going to going to Millwall's ground. If, that, if that's packed, you know, there's not many teams coming away from there with anything. You know, recently we saw Sibley go there with Derby and get a hat-trick. You know, I think he's a wonderful player. He wouldn't have got a hat-trick if that Millwall stadium was full. There's no doubt about it. And... When you, when, when you go back 12 months as well, I did the, the the playoff between Derby and Leeds. And the second leg, Leeds took the lead, and you're thinking, right, it's all over. But then you could start to feel the nerves around the supporters. That transmitted to the players. There was a mistake made by um, the Leeds goalkeeper at the time. Derby took full advantage. And whereas we know how good Leeds supporters are, when the tension starts to be there, that can filter to the players. And it ended up being a little bit of a negative. So when you look at Brentford, they're not a team that, that needs to be inspired by supporters, whether it's home or whether it's away. They just play their own way regardless. I look at a team like Millwall, unbelievable at home. I think Gary Rouse has done, done a remarkable job, yeah. but no way near as good when you don't have supporters. And that, that would be the yeah. same for any team. When I was playing at Stoke, if we played at home in front of twenty eight thirty thousand, 30,000, we know that our performance is going to be far better than if we we're playing... In, in front of you know it, it, it's an empty stadium, so I think that has to be brought into consideration as well. Is that just a mindset Danny,
1: thing? Sorry, go on, Joe. Go on. Is that Joe. just a mindset thing?
2: Do you know what, Joe? I think it's a mindset, but not necessarily of the home team. It's the mindset of the away team. Right. Because, okay. Yeah. Because we used to speak to some some lads after they'd been to Stoke, and they were like, "We just wanted to get in, get out, and just just get it done." You know, people talk about that effect. So, it's yes, it has an effect on the home players, but I also think the effect that it can have on the away team as well, because they're just like, we don't even want to be here. And we've seen that on numerous occasions with different teams. Danny, um, we've
0: got to move on in a moment, but just before we go, um, just have a quick look at the relegation. We promised to talk about the relegation mm. from the Championship. You've got Barnsley at 43 you've points. You've got Luton at 45 and Hull 45 and they are in the, um, in the bottom three. And Hull oh, took a hammer in the other night. But yeah. they, uh, they still might have better goal difference. And then you've got Charlton, two points ahead, with Lee Bowyer, who's strongly linked with the Birmingham City job. Uh, Huddersfield with 48, who play West Brom on Friday, as we've mentioned. And Birmingham, who are not out of it, I promise you. They're not doing very well, Birmingham, with 50 points. And Middlesbrough looks safe, also on 50. But they've got Neil Warnock driving them on. Which three teams, in your opinion, will go down?
2: Well, I, f- I fear for Hull. I really do fear for Hull. New Year's Day, they were a point behind the playoffs. Uh, then they lost Bowen and, and, and Grisicki, who are, were, were huge players for them to play on the counter attack. So they've lost them. And what happens is, and I'm sure Joe would say the same thing, is that when you lose your best plays, you start to question which direction the club's going in. And I think that's what's happened with the players there in free for Luton, they've had a resurgence. Nathan Jones going back to his you know, previous club before he went to Stoke. They've got a great opportunity of getting out of it. I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be Barnsley-Hull and then one other. Charlton took a real blow the other day against Birmingham. You know, they conceded in the last minute and that would have good as got them out of it. So it's it's a difficult one. I just think, I think Barnsley-Hull, then I think you're looking at, I think Birmingham are okay if they'd have started this, you know, if there was another two or three games left, I'd be really fearful for them. But I think it's between, for that third place, I'm looking at Luton, Charlton and Huddersfield because I think Middlesbrough have got enough to get out of it.
0: Okay, we'll move on. Joe, yeah. we talked at the beginning of the podcast about the cancer.
1: huh.
0: It's been a remarkable story and I would like to ask you about it. In, in 2013, you were diagnosed with Hodgkin lymphoma um, and then you had a lot of chemo. Um, and then it came back in 2014 after you conquered it the first time. How did you conquer it both times? and what risk do you
1: feel now? Ooh, good question. How do you conquer it? Um, there's no Regular right checks. Wrong. Yeah, there's no wrong and right answer. you know, I'm a big believer in um, peace of mind and doing what you feel is uh, best for you. Uh, so the first time round, young had a young family say so i was only 22 nearly 23. i'd fundamentally been very very unwell for a long time um, the doctor told me i probably had it for two to three years so that was quite a shock to take once he initially diagnosed and explained what it was um, and it was a cancer of my immune system so i then started to look at a lot of the symptoms and i was ticking a lot of the boxes. Just unbeknown to me, I put a lot of it down to young dad, um, you know, those sleepless nights, uh, just the intensity of professional football. So I was putting a lot of the tiredness down to training and games. Um, But then the telltale sign really was some lumps popped up in the left-hand side of my neck. And that's when I immediately, uh, and thankfully for, for myself and my family, went and spoke to the club doctor. And within the space of four days, um, I'd gone for some scans and was sat across the table from a specialist and was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma. Uh, my initial reaction was very much what I would say of any young man, any young athlete. Right, so what's the, what's the solution? Um, he told me six months worth of chemotherapy on a young oncology unit. So I was going to have to have treatment up in Manchester Uh, at the Christie's and I was going to have to be on a ward with children at times so it was quite tough mentally to get through that because physically I was able to deal with the treatment quite well. I would have it every two weeks and I just looked at it as 12 rounds, a boxer and we're going to go the whole hog, the whole distance and I'm going to knock it out in the end. and I did that and I was put into remission. But the second time round, for it to be three years on, you kind of feel like you're out the woods. You know, two years is a big marker for anybody that's suffered from cancer and, you know, gotten over it. And it's a big marker for doctors as well. So the second diagnosis was far, far worse. Um, and the problem was that I, I knew what the chemotherapy entailed. Uh, and I wasn't feeling unwell at all. It was just one tumour on my chest, whereas the first time round was a large watermelon-sized masses and I was riddled. Um, but that was the gutting feeling. And when I spoke to the doctor and said, like, can we not do an operation and take it out? He uh, said, you know, we can't do it because it's too close to your heart and we paint this room red. But what you're going to have to do is overcome treatment again and I was going to have to have two cycles of 24-hour chemotherapy for six days solid and then I was going to have to spend some time in isolation and undergo what's called a stem cell transplant and that is what it says on the tin you're literally putting in a room solitary confinement and visitors few and far between because any risk of infections coughs and sniffles could be fatal so it was really, really tough mentally. And I think, getting back to the original question, how did I get through it and conquer it? I surrounded myself with you know, positive people and um, people that were going to keep me going because I'll go and do talks now for you know, various places and get standing ovations and be called an inspiration. My nearest and dearest are the, the real soldiers. They've kept me going in some real dark times. So, Joe, Joe you can know- I ask...
3: I'm sorry, can I just ask you a question? Because I always remember a cancer survivor saying, he, he, never, he, doesn't, he, he doesn't like hearing the phrase, I battled cancer. He said, you're the battleground. Yeah. You know, you're not, you're not, you're not battling it yourself. You, you talk about being positive and the people around you. You genuinely believe that has, a positive, that has an effect.
1: Oh, massively. If I tell you a story whereby I was in isolation, after 10 days, they, I hit rock bottom. No shame in saying it. I was so close to throwing the towel in. You, what you have to remember is when you're going through it all and with the chemotherapy, it strips you down to nothing. So for a few days, I was living off machines. Total blur. But I woke up one morning and was hallucinating and I found myself in the corner, a shivering wreck. I'd lost three and a half stone within 10 days. So to look at me, it was just dreadful. You know, even losing my hair overnight was really, really tough. And I understand and empathise with women in particular, because that lack of identity when you look at yourself in the mirror, it's just you're trying to be positive. But then when you look at yourself in the cold light of day and you look terrible, it's uh, hard to get by. But my first wedding anniversary was in there, which was sad. You know, we sat and watched Love Island and I've got these young couples telling each other they love each other. And I remember thinking, you don't have a clue what you're talking about. And then Father's Day was coming up. So I'd not seen my little girl for two weeks. And my wife rang me on the night she was going to bring her in against the doctor's wishes. You know, but I said, for my peace of mind and for my mental health, I need to see my little girl. I just need a reminder of who I'm fighting for and what I'm fighting for. So she rings me up in the morning and tells me that Lula's wet the bed. By this time now, Lula's five. You know, potty training's long gone. She's obviously wet the bed because she's worried and anxious that she's coming to see a dad that she's not seen for so long. In the back of my head, I was really, really reserved because of what I look like. So we'd done FaceTime and, you know, a few video calls, but... To see me face to face was going to be a shock to her. So when she came in after school and she'd brought a little Father's Day card in, I tried to perk myself up as much as possible um, because I knew I was going to only have 10, 15 minutes with her, but it was a really important moment for her, but also for me. And as kids do, you know, she asked me the honest answer after she checked the machines and said, Daddy, are you going to die? And it crushed me. The fact that I could not give her an honest answer and guarantee anything—it um, really, really shook me. And the one thing I'll always say to her, and when I do work with, you know, young lads and young athletes, and as long as you give it your all, you know, no matter what happens, as long as you can look yourself dead in the eye in the mirror and say, "Look, I've given it my best, um, and what will be, will be." Um it is what it is. So when I spoke to my wife when they left and I had a little cry to myself, I said to Chantel, just know whatever happens here, the cancer, if it does go that way, just beat me. I didn't give up and I've got no shame in saying that. So within three days of that visit, all my blood had gone from being on zero to going through the roof. And we talk about, you know, mind, body, and soul. I'm a massive believer in it because we know that when you exercise, you know, it has a positive effect on your mental state and vice versa. So that's why I'm a massive advocate on talking and being as open and honest with each other because if I hadn't had those conversations with some of my close friends and family, I honestly don't think I'd be here.
2: Joe, your outlook and your perspective... On life now just must have completely and
1: utterly changed. 100%, Dan. You know, perspective is probably the word. It's, I looked at it when I was in there and I came across a quote, it'll either make you bitter or it'll either make you better. And what I took from that is I was going to use this as the catalyst because this was the lowest of the low. And I'm just going to reach for the stars and I'm going to try and take as many people along with me and try and have a positive impact because with my kind of upbringing and my childhood, I had quite a lot of, I would say, traumas and emotional scars in a way. But I know, looking back, I was quite a closed and reserved type of person, quite cool, kept myself to myself in the back of the room. Whereas now, particularly after I wrote the book, um, I became an open book. So I try and help as much as possible. But even now with these current times, what we're going through, I know it can be a lot worse. I get it that it's tough, and everyone's got their own journey, and certain people are going to deal with it better. But like you say, perspective—it's um, it's huge.
0: Joe, um, amazing words, mate, and we're all full yeah. of terrific admiration. Everybody listening to this will be. Probably. We need to move on to the last part, but um, you're inspirational, mate. And it's lovely that you can talk so open about it. So we'll be back because we've got your questions, people who listen to this podcast, and thank you very much for doing that, the British Football Podcast. This is an EFL special, but the first question is, why did Danny Higginbottom, with that accent and Manchester upbringing, play for Gibraltar? Gibraltar? Am I reading this right? Yes, he played for Gibraltar. We'll find out why. Welcome back. This is Gary Newbon with this British football podcast, an EFL special. Before we go back to the EFL, because these are your questions, people who listen, and thank you for that to the podcast. Danny Higginbottom had three caps for Gibraltar. Now, Gibraltar. Have I got that
2: right, Gibraltar? Yeah, well, I wasn't good enough to play for England or Spain, so, you know, I had to go, I had to go for, third, for third best. Um, no, my, my Fair enough, Danny. Fair yeah, enough. That's, that, that's my excuse. Um, no, my mum my is, um, you know, my, well, my grandma, sorry, is Gibraltarian. Uh, my mum's full Spanish. And it came about from that. So, basically, I was asked on numerous occasions or, you know, asked if I would be interested when I was at Stoke. But the problem at the time was that Gibraltar wasn't recognized by UEFA. So it would just be finances for them that, that just wouldn't be viable, wouldn't be possible and wouldn't make any sense. So they kept in touch with me. And then I think it was 2013 when, you know, the the call came and said that they'd been recognized by UEFA and they said, you know, would, would I come and be involved? And it's a situation like anything in life. I think it, with, with doing it, you're not going to regret it. Not doing it would have been a regret for me, I think. And I'll never forget, we, the first game they played has being recognised by UEFA, we played against a, a team called Slovakia, and it was my uncle that was the manager, and he was the one that had always kept in touch. And Alan Bula. Alan yes, Bula. Alan, Alan Bula, yeah. And, and, and he was always keeping in touch, asking me if I'd like to be involved, explaining the situation. And because the stadium in Gibraltar wasn't up to UEFA standards they couldn't play their games in Gibraltar so they had to go and play them in Portugal um, on on the Algarve and we played at the Algarve Stadium and I went down on the I flew over on the Sunday and I met the players and it was really important for me that the players didn't think that I was just jumping on the bandwagon because they'd they'd been recognized by UEFA so I sat down sorry everyone was sat down and I stood up and I just said listen you know I said I'm here to give advice I'm here to help in a way any way that I can but what you've done, you've achieved, you've achieved on your own. It's nothing to do with me whatsoever. Um, and then the first game we played was actually against Slovakia. And everybody was saying, you know, if you can keep it down to 9-0, 8-0, then it would be a wonderful result. And we ended up drawing 0-0. Nil, nil. And it wasn't really until after the game, I went to the dressing room and I realised what it meant to everybody because they had the president of Gibraltar in there, the, the president of the Football Association, uh, the mayor, everyone, every, all the important people that you can think of from Gibraltar in the dressing room, and it wasn't a dry eye. Everybody was crying their eyes out, and like I didn't have the understanding of it. And I wanted to get the understanding, so I sat down with, with numerous people that were in tears, and I was like, you know, I understand you know, the, the significance first game being being qualified as in terms of being recognized by UEFA and the result that we got. I said, but why all the emotion? And he was just like, you just don't understand how hard it's been for us. You know, nobody has ever taken us seriously. Nobody has ever given us an opportunity to to be within ourselves. We've always been considered part of Spain. Um, And there was just uh, the emotions that came out were incredible to the point of, like I say, I didn't know too much about the backstories in terms of I hadn't been there. But it ended up being really emotional for me as well. But it was was wonderful. And then what they have in, in Gibraltar, they have one pitch and the, the league obviously is, has, has quite a few teams in it, and they get European places now. But because they only have the one AstroTurf pitch, each team will just get a certain amount of hours per, I think per week to actually go and train on there. And when they're not doing that, they spend a lot of the time running up, running up the rock of Gibraltar. And for that game before we played um, Slovakia, one of the things that made it really hit home for me, we went for a walk the day before the game, and all the players were, were adamant that they needed a sports shop. And you know, I was speaking to the manager, the manager would come and you know ask me a few questions. And I just said to I said to our lads, I said, Why why does everybody need a sports shop? I said, They brought the training gear, they brought everything that we need. And he just said to us, he said, 80% of us have never played on grass before. Gosh, so we ow. need so we need football yeah. boots that, that are capable to to play on, on normal grasses in terms of having studs. Because all they'd been used to, all they'd ever, ever played one was, was at, the, at the small stadium in Gibraltar, which had always been AstroTurf. Danny,
3: what, what, Danny, were they not um, meant to be moving to a new stadium at Europa Point? The, yes. the, other, end of the uh, other end of the rock, yeah?
2: Yeah, they were supposed to. So Europa Point, like you've quite rightly said, is at the other end of the rock. And it's at the moment, or it was last time I was there, it was actually a, a cricket pitch. And the idea was that they were going to have a 10 12,000 stadium, which was going to make it complicit to, to everything that UEFA and FIFA required. Um, but as of yet, I don't think anything's been, been done with it. The one thing I would say about Gibraltar is that there are, there are a number of players that, that play outside of Gibraltar that would probably qualify to play for Gibraltar. And I think they need to be a little bit more open-minded because there's a lot of people that want to help. There's a lot of people that want to help the team go in the right direction. Yeah. And, and I think that's a necessity going forward.
0: Danny, um, Terry Mancini, do you remember that name? He was, um, <laughs> if you didn't mind saying so, a bald headed centre half for QPRs, London as they come. And I remember having lunch with him one day in London and asking him if he could confirm a story. And that was that because of some fiddle, I don't know, his <laughs> great grandmother or whatever, he finished up playing for the Republic of Ireland. Oh. And another player who played with him told me this story. And he said, it is true. He stood at the anthems, while they were playing the anthems. And he turned around to this player and said, whose anthem is this? <laughs> and the player said, ours.
2: It's an interesting one because my, my mum and my dad, obviously my, my mum's from Spain and she spent a lot of time Gibraltar, my, my grandma is Gibraltarian. But my dad was, was in the forces for years and years and he traveled all around the world. So he was in the army. So when he met my mum, my dad was actually stationed in Gibraltar and they actually lived on the rock for a number of years. Um, so there's a, lot of, there's a lot of history as in terms of my family in Gibraltar and there's a lot of my dad's friends that, that didn't move away from Gibraltar. They stayed in around the, the, the Gibraltar area and you know they made that their home. So there's, there is quite a few links um, as in terms of that. But yeah, it was surreal. Right. We'll
0: move on to Joe now. Um, Rochdale. Um, they've got a 17-year-old called Luke Matthewson and this particular social media question is,
1: how far can he go, Joe?" Um, really good question. You know The one thing that I would say regarding Luke, and you know, he's deserved his move to Wolves um, in January, and they loaned him back is Luke, first and foremost, is a great person. He's a great lad, um, and the one thing I know regarding how far he can go is he's coachable. He'll be successful, um, whether it's at Wolves or somewhere else. Because Rochdale have had a real, you know, emphasis on bringing through academy players. You know, under Keith Phil and Brian Barry Murphy now, but Luke's just one of many. But the one thing that sets Luke aside is that. You know, he listens, he's a sponge, he's always wanting to improve. He's always focusing on the, the, the minor details to so try and add a little bit to his game. Very, very difficult to get past, uh, you know, low centre of gravity. Quite small in statuable, got an unbelievable leap. And he fits the perfect mould, I would say, for you know a wing-back right-back in this modern-day game.
0: Great. Well, let's go back to Danny because the next question, and I'll remind, I'll say the question, and I'll just remind everybody who you played for. What's the best? I'll be coming to you about this as well, Joe. What's the best atmosphere in a dressing room that you've experienced, and why? That's the question. Just to remind everybody that Danny played for uh, Manchester United, Antwerp on loan, Derby, Southampton, Stoke twice, Sunderland. Sheffield United, Chester, and Altringham. So, first of all, Danny, what was the best?
2: Um, Stoke City with without without any shadow of a doubt. Um, Tony Pulis returned to the club, and there was a lot of supporters that weren't happy about it because it was his second stint there, his brand of football um, you know, wasn't wasn't considered going to be successful. Well, you know, that that soon got put to bed. Um and what he did, Tony Pulis is, one of the, is probably the best man manager that I've ever worked for. You know, he will say things to you that you know aren't true, but it makes you think because he's actually thinking those things. Um, and he's so good at it. And what he did was that he wanted to sign good plays, but it was most important that they were good characters. And he knew that that's what he needed because what he wanted, wanted to be able to do is have a group of plays in the dressing room and you know, Joe, I'm sure, would say this, is that the more success that you want to have as a team, the more you're going to have to deal with players that that might not fall into line, if that makes sense, because that's, that, that's yeah. what some of the great players are like. But when we'd had a couple of years in the Premier League, because he trusted the dressing room that much, he didn't have any fear of going out and getting a player that maybe had a few different characteristics that maybe wasn't hand-in-hand with the dressing room. And he knew that he could sign that player, throw that player into the dressing room, and within two weeks, that player would be one of the group. It was as simple as that. So that's what he did. It was so important that they had good players, but the most important thing was was the dressing room. We'd we'd start training at half 10. We'd be finished by 12 o'clock. Nobody would leave until 3, 3 3.30 when the time was to come and pick your kids up. You know, it was just... Those things don't happen now. You know, that's, when, that, that's why I look at managers now and I think they've got the hardest job in the world. As in terms of, the, the, sorry, not the hardest job in the world, but they've got the, it's the most difficult time to be a manager now because you've got so many different characters and the generations are so different now. Whereas back then, the togetherness was was incredible and it was, we were out on the pitch. If one of our players was hurt, if one of our players was challenged badly, you could guarantee the lad who had filed one of our players, he was going to end up on the floor within five minutes because everybody was there for each other. And one of the things I always used to do when you're in that tunnel and when I was captain at Stoke, I always used to look back. Just before we walked out, I used to have a look back and used to say, right, we're going into a scrap now. Don't half fancy our team. And there's nothing better knowing that when you're going out into a game, that if it turns into a physical battle, that you've got the the rest of your teammates have got your back as well as you have in their back. And it was just an incredible period of time.
3: Yeah, the fans love that as well, don't they? The fans love that
1: as well, though, don't they? They can they see it. it. Yeah. Go on, John. They can see it. It's authentic, you know, and I'm really glad you pointed that out, Jim, because when I've been in a successful team, they can see it the other way as well when everyone's doing their own things <laughs> and it's, um, you know, I'm all right, over to you. Um, but like you say there, the tunnel is not quite what it used to be. You, you know, they, some games used to be won and lost in the tunnel. And I was really fortunate that when I first broke into professional football, I was at the back end of, I would say, the older pros, um, and some of the things that they taught me uh, that I would then try and implement into the younger generation. Because you're right, said, anytime you look back at like games or someone got fouled, I would always point out, well, "Why didn't you run over and say something? Why was you looking over there, and not getting involved and showing the opposition?" We're together through the good mm. times and the bad. You know, you kick one of us, you kick us all. Um, so it's fascinating. and it's, I've gone into uh, doing a master's degree out of um, Media City up in Manchester, and it's all about personal leadership. And Tony Pulis is, is a question that I really want to ask you. What was so special about him?
2: He, he, was, he, he was a manager that could, that could make you feel six foot tall. So I'll give you one instance, right? And it was never, ever, ever true, right? It was never true, but he came up to me one day, we just played, we were either leading up to play Chelsea or we just played Chelsea, right? And he said to me, he went, you know, right at this moment, he said, I'd rather have you in my team than Ashley Cole. And I just started <laughs> wow. laughing at him. We both knew that it was a ridiculous statement. We both knew that it was like a pathetic statement. I was just like Gavin, listen, uh, you know, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what's going on, but you know it's not it's not the right statement. But just the fact of like things that would go through his head, he knew that he knew that I knew that that I didn't believe it. But just the fact of him to say something like that, to drop it in, yeah, yeah just to drop it in. But he was he was incredible like that. But what he would do as well, he would he would get you doing ridiculous things. So preseason was the character building side of things. So when you look at things and it's like right, okay, we go on heart monitors we'd go on um, going into the red zones. On us, it was the first player to be sick. When, when the first player was sick, the gaffer would look and he'd go, okay, all right, that's had enough. He'd have a little bit of a chuckle and walk off. And then he'd find, he'd find the highest like mountains or whatever. We'd run up them one day and then we'd cycle up them the next day. And we would give the coaching staff dogs abuse. Yeah, What it did, he didn't care about it. He knew there was other things that we needed to do. But what it did, all of a sudden, someone's running up the hill next to me and they're struggling or I'm struggling. My teammates looking at me going, you've got this, you've got this, come on, we'll do this together. And then when times get tough, when the season gets going, you revert back to that and you remember all of these things. And that's what he was so good at doing. He was so good at at, at describing the way that how fortunate we are to be doing what we were doing, simplifying things. But even like going to, if we were traveling to, to an away game and we hadn't had time to train in the morning, you go and find a random field. And I remember we played this one game and we must have got there probably about two o'clock in the afternoon and we were doing shape and we ended up like with, I think we had a seven aside or eight aside at the end, but none of the coaches could keep up with the score because you couldn't see one of the goals because it was too foggy.
1: <laughs> so balls are
2: just going over. And we were sent into the brook to go and get the balls. But it it was it was wonderful and it just brought this togetherness and it 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 just got us a long way and and enabled us to to solidify in the Premier League as well. Gary, Gary It totally was Gary I was go
3: gonna on. say didn't Brian Clough um train a forest team on a roundabout in Madrid or something once <laughs> it was, it was no, throwing... no no
0: no no it wasn't quite that what happened was that um In Madrid, uh, Nottingham Forest were playing Hamburg in their second successful uh, European Cup final, back-to-back. And they were... um, It wasn't actually in Madrid. They were staying uh, quite away from Madrid. And Peter Shilton couldn't find any grass to uh, train on. And he therefore found a roundabout and asked Peter (laughs) Taylor. And somebody was firing shots at him on a roundabout so he had this long training session he needed it every day actually talking about management poor old Jack Charlton who was a great guy Mm. um, could never remember anybody's name called me Jerry the whole of my career (laughs) Um, and and, well Bobby Robson called me John the whole of his my career with him as well but um, Jack uh, Andy was telling me this great story about management and how good he was Charlton they went to see the Pope. Sometimes he, he did things which he didn't even realize how funny he was. And they went to see the Pope before they played Italy in the quarter final. This is the Republic of Ireland uh, uh, um, in 1990. And the Pope asked to see the Irish goalkeeper, Packy Bonner, afterwards and said, I understand you're a goalkeeper. And the Pope said, Yes, um, I was a goalkeeper. Uh, sorry, uh, Packy Bonner said, Yes, I was a goalkeeper. He said, Well, I'll be keeping a special eye on you in the match against italy tomorrow because i too was a goalkeeper so anyway they went to the game they lost one nil and unfortunately paki bonner made a bad error for the goal which scalari scalacci put in afterwards they're sitting they're really disappointed they are being knocked out of the world cup one nil and they're sitting in the dressing room and jack charlton's having his normal fag and when Packy bonner comes out of the shower he says Packy the pope would have named that one which is a great story actually it, but and that's it, the way to handle disaster really
2: it, it is it's 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 interesting and there's always stories i think from managers and when i moved back from sunderland to stoke now sunderland had got promoted and i think they paid i think about three million pound for me so i've gone to sunderland and then the day that i've then signed back for stoke uh, when they had been promoted to the Premier League like the, the, the gaffer Tony sat me down and he went oh I said you know what I said I've had two and from with Sunderland and and this that and what have you you know but we managed to get you back and he got me back maybe for, for two million something like that and he said I've had I've had a chat with Roy and he said you know what he said I told him he said I told him I said when when you went there for three million I said before they even bid for you I said I told you that you weren't worth that money so straight away, you just have a way of making you feel small. So Roy's like, had a, Roy, Roy's had a go at Tony saying, I can't believe, you know, you're getting him back for this money. And Tony just turned around to him and went, well, he was never worth £3 million in the, in, in the first place. <laughs> so just straight bang, straight back down to reality. Do you know that, that's the beauty of managers.
0: Joe, I've got a great story to finish on with Brian Clough because he made me go in the dressing room with him once, which was the most uncomfortable experience I ever had. But before I
1: do that, can I just get out of you what was the best dressing room atmosphere for you? Um, I could be selfish and say like the the last day of the season when I scored the winner against Charlton. Yeah, do Go that. For it. <laughs> Go for it. So, but as a change room, like that was special in a different sense. Whereby those lads, when I'd gone in, probably eight or nine months prior to scoring that goal, I'd been with me. You know, I'd gone in nine stone, baggy kit all the lads when I walked in the gym come and give me some little dumbbells and said like JT we got some work to do and again the elephant was out the room um, and I was like you know what yeah so to be able to give that gift back and you know ensure everyone's survival and make sure everyone's sorted for the next one or two years was unbelievable but I would have to say early on in my Rochdale career when we got promoted uh, we got beat twice on the bounce in the playoffs and we went again for the third year and I felt like I'd never left them because we'd had probably two or three weeks every season away from each other. And it was just the same voice, you know, manager again, barking the orders. So for us to get promoted after the two losses in the playoff was probably the best changing room for me. Inside in in my long
0: career of psychology was Brian Clough and Peter Taylor. And I used to go in their office for a match because I was sort of all Cluffy interviews apart from Brian Moore. And Cluffy said uh, they were having a problem with a great winger called John Robertson who'd hit bad form. He was overweight, he smoked like hell. I, I don't really remember this name, Joe, but John Robertson was a fabulous left winger, right. Scottish so- guy. And they were wondering how to do with it. And they called me in and they discussed this tactic about how Cluffy would attack him and Peter Taylor would, s- stick up for it. It's just before a match that I'm televising. I'm feeling uncomfortable because Cluffy says, hey, by the way, you're coming with us. Because you, you might learn something about our game. And I said, no, I can't address you, <laughs> it's not fair. And I went, they dragged me down there and I went in there and I felt so uncomfortable. The players hated me being in there. I understood that. And Cluffy went up to Robertson and said, hey, fatty, I know what you're doing. You, you're fagging it, you're drinking. And and it's showing in your play. And if it wasn't for my mate here, Peter Taylor, you wouldn't be in the team. And they all look shocked. And Taylor said, like, very unfair, Peter. Very unfair. He's a, he's our best player. not at the moment, he's not. And look at the size of him. He, he shouldn't be in the team. And, and they're doing all this. Anyway, to cut a long story short, who was the man of the match? John Robertson. John Robertson. And these and top, guys, and w- yeah, these these guys were the greatest team. I don't know whether they could do it with modern players. He certainly Cluffy couldn't handle agents, but that was incredible. And what they achieved at Nottingham Forest was somebody said earlier. I think it might have been Danny. They're a big club. They're not actually a big club. They're a, a medium-sized club made big by Brian Clough, yeah. and it was remarkable
2: what they did.
0: Jim, anyway. Jim Smith.
2: Jim Smith was the same. You know, the late great yes. Jim Smith. I had him in the early parts of his career, and yes. you know, they—they they are characters that I miss greatly in the game now.
0: Ron Atkinson, another one. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were so many, so many. He, he called him the bald eagle. And yeah. I, was with, I was with him one day and, and Jim Smith arrived. We were going out for lunch. And he said, the eagles landed. You know, it was, we had so many losses. I tell you what, apart, I'm just trying to think who is funny in the game. I think the game has got so serious and so full of money. Pressure. That a, yeah, yeah, that's what exactly. No one. No, the, the nearest thing to Clough is Jurgen Klopp. And Phil Thompson, oh, no, it wasn't Phil Thompson. Somebody else told me the other day, the thing about Klopp is that he gets it. He gets what the media want. He gets what the public want. He gets what Liverpool's all about, what the city's about. Mm. And, and, you know, I think he, what he's achieved is, is magnificent. Let's have a final word about the EFL. How strong is the EFL, do you think? Starting with you, Danny.
2: Obviously, before all this had happened, I think it was, I think it was the third, the third most watched league in the world behind the Premier League and then the Bundesliga. Um, you know how many, how many leagues in the world? I know obviously it's not been this year, but how many leagues in the world do you have two European Cup winners playing each other, which is okay. what they had last season? You know Aston Villa playing Nottingham Forest. You've got huge clubs and you've got Bielsa. And Bielsa, you know, it'll be a welcome addition to the Premier League, but he came into the Championship and, you know, you look at the amount of managers, your Guardiola, your Pochettino, your Simeone's, that all absolutely love and, you know, worship to a certain extent what Bielsa has done in the game. So, you know, I think it's in great stead and hopefully it comes out of this situation that we find ourselves
1: in quite healthy. And Joe? No, I have to agree, you know. Just, we just want to get back to normal as soon yeah. as possible the quicker we can get some fans back in the grounds and get that atmosphere and you know create that real feel good factor again the better what it is it's a um, terrific league a relentless league um, but long may it continue Absolutely Jim. the last word
3: with you sir I think it's an extraordinary um, league I think particularly the championship it's it's so competitive it's so compelling you can't take your eye off it and um and that you know, one day, not too far off, we'll all be able to go back and into the stadiums mm. and see our teams again. It will happen, guys. Just hang in there, you know. 100%. Well,
0: thank you, everybody. Well, um, thank you for joining us for this British football podcast on the EFL special. Uh, longer than usual, because I'm sure you'll have found the guests as fascinating as myself. Really good talkers, Danny Higginbottom who's now a very successful co-commentator on Sky Sports. Joe Thompson with an inspirational story about his comeback from two bouts of cancer during his days as a professional footballer. And Jen Mabert, a really experienced former football writer who always has a good opinion on all the subjects. So thanks for being with us. Spread the word. We'll be back soon. So thank you for now.